This is Stacey Harbaugh and Marcus Slayton with your local news coming to you live from our homes via the WORT studios in downtown Madison. Here's tonight's headlines. The leader of an investigation into Wisconsin's November election visited Arizona last week to learn about the state's election audit. The Associated Press reports that former Wisconsin Supreme Court Justice Michael Gableman also visited an elections fraud symposium arranged by an ardent Trump supporter. Gableman is in charge of one of the numerous investigations into Wisconsin's election results. The legislature's nonpartisan audit bureau is also conducting an investigation, as is the Republican-held Assembly Elections Committee. Governor Tony Evers is diverting about $50 million in grant money to Wisconsin's child care providers and education nonprofits. Funding for that program comes from the Federal American Rescue Plan. The grants will fund mental health support programs and additional learning opportunities for children through the 2021 through 2022 school year. Locally, funding will be provided to, among others, the Boys and Girls Club, Goodman Community Center, the Wisconsin Youth Company, and the YMCA of Dane County. Those four organizations will receive more than a million dollars each. Wisconsin's Building Commission has improved more than $92 million to fund construction projects across the state. According to the governor's office, that includes a new addition to the UW-Madison's Cole Center that will include new facilities for sports medicine, administrative functions, and renovated spaces for the various UW athletic teams that operate out of the building. Also included was funding for new water utility improvements at Madison's Mendota Mental Health Institute, a public psychiatric hospital on the city's north side. The Madison Public Library System will be resuming its pre-pandemic hours with a few alterations. Starting Tuesday, September 7th, nearly all of Madison's libraries will be returning to their normal operating hours. But due to budget cuts last year, some libraries will be reducing operations for the foreseeable future. Affected branches include the Alicia Ashman, Central, Monroe Street, Penny, and Sequoia Libraries. Additional Sunday hours will be added for the Goodman South and Lakeview Libraries. Madison's Monk Institute will be offering a series of free mental health workshops later this month. Those events, which will be virtual, will be held from August 23rd through the 31st. The Capital Times reports that the workshops will help the city's Monk community address issues of mental health, addiction, depression, PTSD, and trauma. And now on to today's top stories. The Delta variant of coronavirus has surged across the country, and Wisconsin is no exception, as hospitals and healthcare workers cope with rising hospitalizations. WORT reporter Seeger Gray has the story. At a press conference this afternoon, Governor Tony Evers and Department of Health Services experts gave updates on the rise in coronavirus cases statewide. Governor Evers emphasized the danger posed by the Delta variant, which is now the predominant strain in Wisconsin. Folks, this Delta variant is no joke. It is highly infectious and is spreading more quickly than any other strain of the virus. We are no longer in the fight against COVID-19. This is now a fight against the Delta variant and all the potential variants that could follow. Wisconsin is seeing a resurgence of COVID-19 cases due to the Delta variant. Health officials report the seven-day average of new cases has hit 1,104. Average daily hospitalizations have hit levels last seen in February 2021, and nearly 90% of ICU beds across the state are in use. Wisconsin Public Radio reports that Wisconsin healthcare systems are reopening COVID-19 units. Here's DHS Deputy Secretary Julie Willems Van Dyke. We find ourselves in a situation that we hoped was in the past. We risk our hospital systems being overwhelmed again, just as they were last November. Deaths from COVID-19 are still low with an average of two deaths per day. 
Van Dyke says that's because the people who are at the most risk of severe cases, such as seniors, have vaccination rates close to 90 percent. Overall, 49.8 percent of Wisconsin residents and 68 percent of Dane County residents are fully vaccinated. Governor Tony Evers hinted at the press conference that incentives for getting vaccinated aren't off the table. Two weeks ago, President Joe Biden recommended offering $100 in exchange for getting vaccinated. Wisconsin is currently offering free cream puffs for getting vaccinated at the state fair. Evers says further incentives are still under consideration. Governor Evers also said he would have a decision by next week on whether he would require state employees to get vaccinated. Earlier this month, his administration mandated indoor masking for state employees. Vaccinations are available for anyone age 12 and up from Public Health Madison and Dane County. Through their website, you can book appointments at the clinics at 2230 South Park Street and 2705 East Washington Avenue. There is no statewide mask mandate in Wisconsin after the state Supreme Court struck down Governor Evers' mandate in March, but Van Dyke strongly recommends wearing a mask for the time being. Masks are like a seatbelt on the airplane. You wear your seatbelt for takeoff, and when you hit your cruising altitude, you can take it off and move around the cabin. And if your plane hits a patch of rough air, the pilot asks you to get back to your seat and to put your seatbelt back on. Van Dyke finished the analogy by saying we've now hit some turbulence, meaning masks should go back on for now until the situation is stabilized. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Seeger Gray. Big news for data wonks. The U.S. Census Bureau released a massive amount of data today from last year's census. The data also formally kicks off a partisan fight over maps for state and federal office. WORT Sholly Pittman has the roundup. Dane County's population grew by 15 percent, adding more than 73,000 people over the last decade, the highest growth by county in all of Wisconsin. That's according to detailed census numbers released this afternoon by the U.S. Census Bureau. The release of the census numbers starts the official drumbeat of a political war over redistricting. Governor Tony Evers has asked the legislature to take up maps drawn by his nonpartisan redistricting commission, but lawmakers haven't done so. Shortly after the release of the census numbers today, Assembly Speaker Robin Voss said he was confident Evers would approve maps drawn by the Republican-held legislature. That came as GOP lawmakers announced a website for the public to submit their own maps this fall. If Governor Evers vetoes maps proposed by the legislature, it'll be up to the courts to decide district borders for elected officials. That's a route that pundits predict. In May, the state Supreme Court rejected a Republican proposal to bypass lower-level courts when filing redistricting lawsuits. Last time around, the political fight over maps went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. Counties and municipalities must also redraw their maps for local elected office, and they don't have much time. Governor Evers recently vetoed a bill that would give local officials more time to complete their redistricting process. Now, local officials must complete their redistricting by the end of the year. Today's data dump came later than usual. The Census Bureau had planned to release all this data in March, and it did release some top-level numbers in April. That's when we learned that Wisconsin will hang on to its eight congressional seats, but it won't gain any more. Detailed results, though, were delayed by months as the Census Bureau struggled to process data collected during a pandemic and an adversarial presidential administration. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Shelley Pittman. Wisconsin students and their families are making plans to transition back to school, and in-person learning could be a big change for many students. Parents can help their children prepare after a challenging year spent away from many of their peers. For more, we turn to Mike Moen with the Wisconsin News Connection. The school year is fast approaching, and many Wisconsin students will be headed back to the classroom for the first time in a while. That's prompting reminders about ensuring they're handling the transition okay. Whether it was all distance learning or a hybrid situation, students are returning after a year with plenty of isolation. Wisconsin's Office of Children's Mental Health says it's important for parents and educators to help kids rebuild peer connections. Kate McCoy, a research analyst with the office, says while there's a lot of concern about making up for lost learning time, 
the social factor shouldn't be forgotten. We also know that learning happens in relationships and in communities. For both right away, the immediate needs and long term, kids really need those strong adult and peer connections in order to thrive. For parents, she suggests arranging play dates with other kids as their child heads back to school. And educators are encouraged to hold classroom discussions about individual experiences and coping strategies. Dr. Rhonda Randall with United Healthcare says parents should check in regularly with kids and listen and watch for even subtle changes in their mood or behavior. She notes the importance of supporting and validating kids' feelings if they're anxious or upset. One of the things that we talk about is sharing that we go through it as adults, too, and how we deal with stress. The older you get, the more practice and experience you have dealing with that. So letting your kids know that it's something that all humans experience, even their parents. She adds families should help children be prepared to be flexible about school disruptions with COVID-19 variants still a concern. And McCoy says keeping kids informed about what's happening with the pandemic is important, but too much exposure to concerning news isn't ideal, especially for younger students. They just need to know, you know, this is what the school is doing now, this is what's happening today, this is the routine, and that everybody's on board. The CDC has said in-person learning for fall 2021 is the priority and offers resources for talking to kids about COVID-19. Mike Moen, Wisconsin News Connection. Find our rate trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. It's now 6.18 p.m. You're listening to the live local news on WORT. report by the investigative news outlet ProPublica finds that Ron Johnson, Wisconsin's senior U.S. senator, directed millions of dollars in tax breaks to his three biggest campaign donors. Johnson, a Republican, inserted provisions into a 2017 tax overhaul enabling top donors, Diane Hendricks and the Uline family, to claim $215 million dollars in tax deductions in 2018. For more, our producer Jonah Chester spoke with Justin Elliott, the investigation's co-author. So just off the top here, can you, in basic terms, explain this measure Senator Ron Johnson pushed for in the 2017 federal tax overhaul and sort of how it, how it benefited his major top donors? Sure. So the measure we're talking about here was part of the 2017 Trump And the thumbnail version is that if you're the owner of a certain common type of business, uh, you would get a new 20% deduction on your business income. So what that means is that if you made $100, you'd only have to pay taxes on $80 if you uh, have one of these types of businesses, which are known as pass-throughs. So a couple of Senator Johnson's biggest donors, uh, the Uline family of the packaging company Uline and Diane Hendricks of ABC Supply own two of the largest of these types of businesses in the entire country. So what we found was that this deduction that Senator Johnson fought to expand delivered those two families millions and millions of dollars of tax savings, potentially up to actually half a billion dollars over the life of the tax break. And now here's a Senator Johnson's sort of statement in response to your story. He said that, quote, my support for pass through entities that represent over 90 percent of all businesses was guided by the necessity to keep them competitive with C corporations and had nothing to do with any donor or discussions with them, unquote. There are two items in there I'd like to dive a little bit deeper on. And you just touched on one there a minute ago. Central to this story is sort of the the difference between a C corporation and a pass through company. Help me and help our listeners understand understand the difference there. Sure. So, you know, these things get complicated, but but basically when you think of a big public company that you might be able to buy a share of stock of, so I'm talking like Apple, Amazon, Coca-Cola, that's a C corporation. So one of the big tax measures uh, in the Trump bill was cutting the corporate tax rate. 
Now, most businesses, including most businesses that you'd see walking down the main street of any town, are not actually C-corporations. They are in this other category known as pass-throughs. So if you think of a business that's an LLC uh, partnership, uh, sometimes they're called S-corporations. These are pass-throughs, and what that means basically is that when the business makes money, the profit gets reported on the owner's uh, personal tax return in much the same way I report my wages on my tax return. If I owned one of these businesses, I would report the profit of the business on my tax return and have to pay taxes on it. So this new deduction that's at the center of our reporting is for this type of business to pass through, which could be anything from a barbershop on the corner to a giant company like Uline that has thousands of employees. So by overhauling the tax provisions for those pass-throughs, it, if I can sort of simplify this down and, and uh, simmer it down into its core item here, it benefited small businesses, but more to the point, it majorly benefited those three major donors as they own some of the largest pass-through uh, businesses in the country. Is that is that sort of a good, concise summary there, or is that maybe a bit of a gross oversimplification? Yeah, no, that, that's absolutely right. And in fact, one of our findings was that while the Trump administration and, and proponents of this new measure were consistently describing it as aimed at small businesses, since that time, there's been studies done by economists showing that while, while many small businesses did get a kind of modest tax break, the vast, vast majority uh, of the tax savings from this provision went to the wealthy and, in fact, ultra-wealthy. So, for example, the, the Yulon family, uh, Diane Hendricks, are both worth billions and billions of dollars. And in the first year of this new measure alone, we found that they together had, I think, over $200 million in tax deductions from this measure. And this is the measure that Senator Johnson was responsible for uh, expanding. That's just one measure in what is, uh, frankly, a very a very difficult and apocryphal tax overhaul. You know, this tax deal benefited far more people than just Senator Johnson's donors. Uh, probably one of the most ironic uh, cases was the largest beneficiary of this program, according to your reporting, was one-time Democratic presidential candidate Michael Bloomberg, who walked away with nearly $68 million in tax savings in 2018. So Senator Johnson's sort of amendment addition aside— Tell me more about the wide-ranging impact of this of this tax overhaul as a whole. Sure. So in terms of who benefited from this particular provision of the Trump's tax law, you're absolutely right. It, it didn't just go to Republicans, for example. As you said, Michael Bloomberg, a prominent uh, New York City Democrat, appears to be the, the single biggest winner from this deduction. He, of course, owns most of uh, Bloomberg LP, the, the media company. But we thought it was notable that, you know, Senator Johnson actually, when the bill was was being drafted, came out and said he was going to vote no on this. He became the first Republican senator to, to actually say he was going to vote no on this big tax bill, uh, unless the tax break for these businesses was sweetened. And, and his holding out worked as a negotiating tactic. And then we thought it was quite striking that two of the biggest beneficiaries were his two major donors, uh, the, the Yulon family and, and Diane Hendricks. Now, I also want to note that, you know, we asked the senator's office whether he had spoken to either the Ulines or Diane Hendricks about the tax provision. Uh, and he didn't actually answer that. He just said that his support was based on his sort of beliefs about the tax code. Uh, but he didn't really speak to the question of whether you discuss this with with those particular donors. Now, looking forward a little bit, now that the the Democrats have a hold, it is a, it is a somewhat loose hold on the Senate, House, and presidency. What's the future look like for these tax provisions? You know, they sort of expire naturally in 2025. But is there a potential? Are lawmakers discussing a potential repeal ahead of then? Well, it's sort of a murky moment, an important moment right now, because on Capitol Hill, they're currently deciding. Uh, what's going to go in these pair of infrastructure bills. And at least one of those bills is going to require measures to raise revenue. And one way to do that would be, for example, to end this tax deduction early or at least to cut it off for wealthy people. Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon, who is the chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, has a proposal that would 
cut off this new deduction, but only for wealthy people. It would actually expand the deduction for, for people making, I think, less than half a million dollars. Uh, but but for somebody like Diane Hendricks or the Uline family, uh, this would be a, a big hit to them. So that proposal is out there. But there's other Democrats who take the opposite view and actually want to make this permanent. And most, most if not all, Republicans support the, the provision and, and most likely would vote to, to make it permanent. So only time will tell. So sort of pivoting away from the, the tax overhaul specifically for our final few minutes here, um, this is part of a larger reporting project y'all at ProPublica have been working on. Now, talk to me a little bit more about that. I'm interested in sort of a, a behind-the-curtain peek into your reporting. I understand this sort of got kicked off when you uh, were given a trove of IRS tax documents. Talk to me about the stories ProPublica has been working on based on that information that was provided to you. That's right. So as, as you say, um, ProPublica has obtained uh, a trove of, of tax records that cover thousands of the wealthiest people in the country. And so we've published a series of stories that are intended to show people how the tax system that we have, that Congress has written over time, really works and, and who, who, who wins, who loses. I mean, among some of our other findings is that there's been years when People like Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk have actually paid zero dollars in federal income taxes because of the structure of the tax code and and how it allows them to to structure their finances to avoid, in some cases, paying literally any taxes. So we have a whole series of stories um, at ProPublica. It's called the Secret IRS Files that uh, I encourage folks to read. Justin, thanks so much for joining me today. Before I let you go, is there anything else about your reporting you sort of want to want to float to the surface here? Uh, this is a this is a very in depth story, and there's a lot that we can't cover in a ten to fifteen minute interview. But just in our final few minutes here, is there anything that you'd like to include uh, here today that you think listeners should be aware of, or that we didn't quite get to touch on? Sure. Part of our reporting in this story was based on records that we obtained through the Freedom of Information Act, and we actually obtained something quite unusual, which is correspondence between several senators, including Senator Johnson and several officials in the Trump Treasury Department. And what that correspondence shows is that a major donor to Senator Johnson, a a real estate developer named uh, Ted Kellner, emailed Senator Johnson with a request on how the tax bill should be changed as it was being written. And Senator Johnson forwarded that request on to several other top Republican lawmakers on Capitol Hill, as well as some members of the Trump administration, and said, basically, look at this. This guy is making a very good point. We should we should make the change that he's asking for, which was to extend some tax cuts to uh, real estate developers. And I just want to note that we, we have posted that exchange, and it, I think it was a, a quite striking example of the kind of access that donors to politicians get and how, you know, if a normal person emailed the senator, it would probably basically be put in the trash. But if a donor emails the senator, you know, that could go right to the top people on Capitol Hill. So that's something else we published with the story. And you can find that along with the entire story, which I'd strongly recommend reading online at ProPublica.org. Justin, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much. Justin Elliott is a reporter covering business and economics at ProPublica. And you're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Please stay with us. We have lots more stories coming up. UW Health joins a new vaccine study for children. We revisit the debate over Madison's bus rapid transit project. And Radio Chipstone talks washing machines and dirty laundry. But first, we'll take a quick break. Check in on some world headlines and we'll be right back. Time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton, here with Stacey Harbaugh. Thanks for joining us. 
UW Health is joining a new project to study the effectiveness of the Moderna COVID-19 vaccine in children. The study focuses on children under the age of 12. Now, that's the last major group that's still ineligible for the COVID-19 vaccine. According to the state's Department of Health Services, children under 12 make up about 14 percent of Wisconsin's overall population. For more on the study, our producer Jonah Chester spoke with Dr. William Hartman, a researcher at the UW School of Madison and Public Health and the study's co-leader. So UW Health's American Family Children's Hospital here in Madison will be one of about 100 sites involved in this study. Now, here in Madison, uh, I believe you're looking to sign up about 80 children. So tell me a little bit more about what what this study entails. Uh, Walk me through what the process will look like and also sort of what you're looking for in this research. So this is a, a trial done in partnership with Moderna to test their vaccine in the only population that has yet to have a vaccine available to them. So the, the kids under 12 years old. So we're looking for kids ages six months to 12 years old uh, who are relatively healthy. They could have a condition like asthma or something. As long as it's stable, that doesn't uh, prevent you from uh, enrolling in the study at all. The trial itself, uh, each enrolled child will be enrolled for 14 months. And we are going to give uh, injections much like the Moderna to the adults. So it's on two separate days, one on day one and one on day 29. In the interim, uh, we're going to follow up with these kids and make sure that everything is going okay, that there's no untoward side effects or anything that uh, would be concerning. We don't expect anything like that to happen. But just to make sure, and that's one of the reasons we do these, these safety and efficacy trials. The rest of the trial is to follow up for 14 months to see that the immunity is lasting. And so we want to make sure that these kids are protected against COVID-19 for for at least a year, determine if that uh, immunity wanes at all. And if it does, do they need a booster shot? And so uh, these are all things that uh, are important questions that we need to have answered. So diving a little bit more into the selection process for this study, um, you know, since since it is minors, I have to imagine the process is a little bit different than for a, a standard medical study or a standard vaccine study. Walk me through the selection process for this. Uh, do folks come to you? Are you like actively searching in the community? What does that look like on that front? So people will, will hear uh, about the study through uh, television media, social media, uh, radio shows like your, yourself, they will then call either the, the coordinators, the, the number will be out there, and uh, they can look at kidcove.com, which is a, a webpage explaining the trial and also gives you an opportunity to sign up for it. I, I think that there'll be a great deal of interest in this study, especially as the kids are uh, about ready to go back to school. So I don't think that we're going to have to recruit too incredibly hard for it. I think I think that the Lots will fill up uh, pretty quickly. But yes, the, the process, the, the parents do have to agree to have their, their child entered into this clinical trial. Uh, there is a, a relatively long consenting process that, that takes place just so that all the parents know risks and benefits and any of the, answer any of the questions that they might have about the trial. As long as they are in agreement with all of that and, and the child uh, seems comfortable moving forward, uh, we will uh, enroll that that participant and enter him into the trial. You touched on it there a minute ago, and I'd like to dial a little bit deeper into it, but how do you ensure safety for the children who are participating in this trial? How do you monitor them for any adverse health impacts over the, the, the next few months? So with any clinical trial, there's always an assumption of risk that, that is taken up by any participant. That's why these are heroes. They're stepping up to the plate and and trying to get us the answers that we need so that we can make things available safely to the greater public. That said, well, first, we we know that these vaccines uh, have been given to billions of people, that they've been safe and effective. They've got an excellent profile on both of those parameters uh, to date. We anticipate that's going to carry out to the children as well. 
We also know that uh, a first part of this study has already been done, not at UW, but at uh, other universities where they looked at uh, dosing regimens to find out what's the best dose to give kids. And so there's a lot of kids that have already received uh, this vaccine, and we know that it's been tolerated pretty well. Next, every child that's enrolled has a, what's called an e-diary, where they or, or their parents will fill out uh, any symptoms or side effects that they experience, and that uh, immediately gets uh, sent to us at the clinical trials and to Moderna for evaluation. After the injections, we watch these children for at least 30 minutes afterwards to make sure that there's no acute reactions. We follow up with them. My team follows up with them daily for that first week and then weekly after that uh, to make sure that everything is going according to plan. And so while there is some risk when we sign up for a trial, we try to do this as, uh, in as controlled of environment as we can so that we can really intervene if we have to. Uh, we don't anticipate any problems, but that's why we do the trials. We have to see if anything pops up. How far out do you estimate we are for vaccinations for children under under 12? You know, that's largely the last major category of folks who are ineligible for a COVID-19 vaccine. Where are we at with that process? Can we anticipate something in the next few months or will it be a year or more until we see that? I really think that we're probably looking at the, the early part of winter uh, where shots will be available to the kids. And so these trials will get done, but the data gets interpreted in real time. And so even though we won't have all 14 months of the trial uh, completed, obviously, we will have uh, safety and efficacy data from all 100 sites in a relatively short period of time, uh, within a couple of months. That data will be looked at. It'll be uh, scholarly. They'll comb through it with a, with a fine-tooth comb to make sure that, that everything looks appropriate. They'll submit that to the FDA, and the FDA will decide whether or not the data supports it being uh, added to the emergency use authorization uh, for Moderna dispersal to, to the children. I really think that by Christmas, uh, we will have shots available for these kids. Dr. Hartman, thank you so much for joining me today. I appreciate your time. Absolutely. Thank you very much. William Hartman is a doctor and researcher with the UW School of Medicine and Public Health. If you've been on Madison State Street at any point in the past month, you've likely noticed a plethora of signs reading no BRT on State Street. The debate over Madison's Bus Rapid Transit, or BRT, project has been heating up in the past few weeks, as Mayor Satya Rose Conway and downtown business owners butt heads over the planned route for the project. For more, our producer Jonah Chester spoke with Isthmus reporter Dylan Brogan, who just authored a piece examining the ongoing BRT debate. All right. So in this month's edition of Isthmus, which we should always mention is back in print, I'm shaking a pretty awesome. paper into the mic right here to indicate to folks that they should read this story in print. Yeah. Uh, you published a look into Madison's bus rapid transit program. Now, this program has become somewhat controversial in the past couple weeks as, uh, as in fact, more controversial or the controversy has stretched back even before then as uh, Madison Mayor Satya Rhodes Conway and business owners on State Street have sort of butted head over this proposal. Can you kind of walk me through the background here? Let's refresh people. What, yeah. is, what is Madison's bus rapid transit program. Well, it hasn't quite started yet, but it's a pretty big deal and about uh, a lot of money, particularly from locally and a huge chunk from the federal government. I think a good way to think about it is like a massive upgrade to the existing public transit system in Madison. So the Isthmus, uh, we're an Isthmus city that makes things uh, that is both a challenge and a good thing in terms of public transit. But uh, Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway ran on bringing this kind of bus rapid transit system, finally getting it done. It's been talked about forever. Kind of the stars aligned. Joe Biden being in office was a big, important part of it. So the money's there. The federal mm -hmm. support is there. COVID happened. That kind of put things mm -hmm. like what was going to happen with it. But everything kind of still was moving forward. But it came as a big shock when uh, the, the routes for this downtown, three blocks of, of bus rapid transit going down State Street, kind of it, it took people by surprise, mm -hmm. particularly State Street business owners. And now there is 
what probably no that's a it's a growing uh, opposition to mm-hmm. bus rapid transit now right now it's confined to just having it on state street but it kind of looks like uh, growing into more opposition to this the whole plan for bus rapid transit yeah i was on state street a few weeks ago and you it's basically every other window has a no brt on state like street it. sign they are not a fan important so to remember too state street businesses don't like the regular buses being mm-hmm. on state street this is nothing new there has kind of been this grand idea to make all of state street into a promenade like uh you may not even think of it as State Street, but the last two blocks, the seven eight hundred blocks, are Library Mall. That's kind of what people want to see, where you know there's no nothing but pedestrian traffic, and you have food carts set up. It looks great, but there are some challenges to making that happen. That the mayor thinks are, in particular, thinks you know it's a little bit of a fantasy that this uh, what some people want this mm-hmm. State Street promenade going up and down the whole thing is, is ever going to happen and so she's plowing forward despite the opposition mm-hmm. and it's just a few blocks of State Street and I, I believe three I blocks. was it's three blocks I was at the press conference where Mayor Satya Rhodes Conway announced redesigned bus stations uh, it's only it's only two bus rapid transit stations yep. that are on State Street. Talk to me a little bit more about the complaints that business yeah. owners have with those specific proposals in general, because those were actually uh, when she presented them a few weeks back. Those were uh, those were her compromise stations. They are different than any yeah. other stations that are being built along the well, route. Well, she made them a lot smaller. That mm-hmm. was like supposedly put out there as a compromise to address concerns. But here's the truth about it, Jonah. It's really they don't want the buses. Yeah. The stations, yeah, they're huge or whatever, but they it really is the buses that people don't want, The particularly the State Street businesses. And that is surprising to the mayor, right? It's surprising because she has all this economic data that, that's been put out there that this is going to help that, that people at, that having a station there, having it go down State Street will actually help them. And just to back up a little bit, kind of where the the why people are angry about this route downtown. It's really the downtown route is because uh, all of a sudden uh, like kind of the downtown Madison Inc and Madison Central Business Improvement District both kind of lobbying for interest downtown. You know, them and just regular old business and property owners kind of didn't think that the routes were set in stone, Mm -hmm. but then they learned from the city right about when these stations were announced that, oh, we can't change the route or else we're going to have to delay this environmental report that we already started, and that delays the whole thing, and that may put in jeopardy the federal funds. Mm -hmm. Now, whether it would put the federal funds in jeopardy is a big old question mark, but there's, there's ways you can see how if you pull the local funding from BRT, that would also kill it. And that would mean a huge investment from the federal government into just general infrastructure upgrade for our public transit system is gone. And that opportunity is lost for the entire city. So a significant portion of the argument being made by these state street businesses is that the mayor and city leaders made this decision sort of unilaterally. Yeah. What was the public input on this on this route? Well, there was public input, but I think a couple and I, and even the strongest opposition to BRT right now will sort of admit that COVID might have been a factor of it. But mm-hmm. it always was like they were having meetings about where the downtown route to be. But before, like when the routes were actually being kind of debated and could be changed, that was more like in October or the fall of 2020. Those were focused on the Capitol Square. And that's Mm -hmm. another part of it is the mayor thought it was very important to have the buses go down the Capitol Square. Well, because of the unique architecture or just design of the isthmus and our weird streets, we don't have a good grid. If you have them on the Capitol Square, you can't. It's very hard to reroute them around. (laughs) There was oppositions to have them on the square because there's so many events downtown and you would have to go to kind of like an outer loop alternative route like 80 days out of the year. Now, the mayor doesn't seem to think that's a big deal, but people are like, why not just put it somewhere else? But it's just a teeny bit more complicated than that, and there really isn't a good alternative of where to put this route. It just came as a shock that the the downtown route was like a done deal, and all these stakeholders thought they were going to have a chance to battle it out on the public debate stage, but it was a surprise that, oh, nope, they're set. We are already doing the environmental report. We want to break ground, and the mayor's just moving forward. Now, Is there fear, and I get this is asking you to get a little bit into the mayor's mindset. I can't recall if she actually addressed this in the story. Yeah. But is there fear that if she gives in on this, what is a relatively, if you look at it geographically, it is a a small portion of the larger bus rapid transit route, which sort of stretches from east to west Madison all across town. 
Is there fear on her end that if she gives in on this small three-block stretch that, as you mentioned, the no BRT kind of movement is threatening to move beyond State Street, that it could spring up in other parts of the city and, you know, what would become a a moderate derailment could become a, a derailment of the entire project? Well, to some extent, I yes, but it's to be fair to the mayor, it's mm-hmm. kind of like her position at this point is, hey, we're moving forward with this because mm-hmm. it would delay the project. She wants to get this done. That is one thing that she promised she was going to do, and she has delivered on it. And that, and the truth is, just changing the downtown ride at this point would would delay it. Now, would that mean the whole thing goes up in smoke? Probably, you know, the federal funds will probably still be there. We don't really know. Mm-hmm. They certainly are, would be more in jeopardy than they are now, the federal funds. But in terms of like the rest of the city opposing this, I think it's more about like supporting downtown. And I mm-hmm. think that is one thing that I really try to address in the article is that everything that happened last year with COVID and the protests and looting and writing that these that downtown business owners, this was sort of like a, a straw that broke their backs and metaphorically speaking. And they are like, we're not being listened to. We're not being supported. And you could see how in other debates and one alder who I talked to who wanted to remain anonymous told me was, hey, just look at this men's shelter. Everyone supports this mm-hmm. men's homeless shelter. Uh, but then when you get down to the nitty gritty details, it's all of a sudden there's nothing on the books at all. And years of city planning are gone and that's it. And could something similar derail the whole BRT system where we would lose the federal funds if the local funds aren't there? And that is kind of the chicken and what's the metaphor I'm going Chicken here? and the egg? The chicken, uh, uh, not quite. The, the, when they're fighting... Playing a game of chicken. Oh, okay. It's there the we go. game of chicken that is being played. And, you know, I think right now, downtown, uh, the people who are really opposed to this are saying they don't, they do support BRT. Mm-hmm. They want this. They do think it'll be good. They just don't want it on State Street. And they are very fed up with the mayor, not sort of heeding, like her seeming unwillingness to compromise. So we're going to have to see what happens moving forward. But so far, uh, the mayor is getting what she wants. Yeah, so... And let's not forget, too, there's a couple of, like, former mayors like uh, Paul Soglin and former mayor Dave Cheslevich who uh, appear to be more sympathetic to these State Street businesses and are, are would presumably be more, you know, inclined to listen to their mans and maybe take it to the Outer Square or on Johnson or on Gorm. But the truth is there's just no good alternative route and it's going to delay things. That's just what's going to happen. Should it be delayed? A lot of people think it should. Yeah, one of the more prominent critics you mention in this story is former mayor Paul Soglin, who has expressed concerns with the project, I believe in posts on Facebook, correct? Yes, and he notably has really butted out of like, he won't do any interviews normally, (laughs) but he kind of came out of the shadows and... You know, remember, he he ran against uh, Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway. And what was a little weird about it was like, you know, even before that, when it when he was running for governor, he was like, well, if there was one. He basically said, I'm paraphrasing, like, well, if there's one person who could do the job, it's her. And then he ended up running against her. Right. When he <laughs> ran for re-election, when his gubernatorial plans didn't work out. And he's also like been there. You know, he was the mayor in, in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. And, and obviously this last stint in the 2000s. Um, and no one person is more responsible for how State Street looks now mm. than him. And he sees, you know, having buses off of State Street as like sort of the final evolution of this miracle street. He was telling me how like it, when State Street first became the pedestrian mall. Yes, it has buses on it, but the pedestrian mall that it is now. There were like 15 cities all over the country that also were doing exactly the same thing. And State Street is the only one that worked. And so this is like about placemaking and about it shouldn't be a transit hub. It should be like this city cultural hub. But that's kind of where the rub is right now. The uh, the mayor is one person told me like this is the hill she's willing to die on. And, and she did run. Like a big part of her campaign was getting this done. And to her credit, uh, she largely has. So where does this debate go from here? Uh, does the bus rapid transit have to go through any more layers of approval by common council, Not city really. committees? Or is it is it? A... But you can all during the budget, you can always Ooh. just yank those funds. So that's why I stumbled through uh, saying the game of chicken, because mm-hmm. are alders willing to, you know, go that far? Is the but because the state street businesses and that and the stakeholders down there they are an influential bunch and they tend to push their weight around and 
Remember, Downtown Madison, Inc., the Madison's bid, uh, central bid, these are, you know, essentially lobbying organizations for these businesses and neighborhoods that other parts of the city don't have and, and definitely represent a powerful, like, kind of political block. So with budgeting season just around the corner, we'll who have know, to keep it, an eye on who it. Who knows? Uh, so that's something I'm going to keep an eye on. And yeah, I mean, but I when you talk to State Street business owners, they, they're not giving this up. They don't mm-hmm. care that the mayor is moving forward. Well, I've been joined in the studio by Isthmus reporter Dylan Brogan. Uh, You can find his full story on the BRT debate online on Isthmus.com, or much more preferably, why don't you pick up a hard copy back in print this month and get it uh, at your local newsstand. Dylan, thanks so much for joining me. Jonah, thank you. It's 6.53 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. contributor Jennifer Fields has spent so much time daydreaming about her new kitchen that she drools over cabinets, flooring, and appliances while listening to the radio. But not too long ago, she was worried about how she was going to do her next load of laundry. Okay, maybe not so much worried as angry. I mean, angry. In this archival edition of Radio Chipstone, Field remembers her first washing machine. Priscilla, queen of the laundry. Washer. Oh, I've been in the service industry since I've been a kid. I mean, my dad was a service manager for milking equipment. So I was out on farms when I was three, four years old. So it's just in my blood, I guess. I enjoy doing it. So how long have you been doing this? Too many years. 26. <laughs> so how has repairing these things changed in all those years? Oh, it's, it's become crazy. With the electronics nowadays, it's, a lot of it's done through the, the touch pads, you know, and you can put it into diagnostic testing. This is kind of like your command center, though, so it's telling it what to do. This is what they call a user interface board, okay? It has to know what to do here before it lets anything else happen. These are kind of like what they what we call in the business called idiot plugs. They can only go in one way. So how has this panel changed in all those years? Was it like before a big huge mess? Yes, yes. Big, big mess. I mean it was, they were never really allowed to, I mean, I mean the space savings has is, is helped out dramatically because of the smaller components. There's some though you still got, you know, it's a little bit harder to diagnose them in terms of what the actual problem is. I'm telling you right now, I would have cried if you couldn't have fixed this machine. <laughs> Why? Oh, we would have been able to fix it. Because I'm so attached to it and it's like the thought of having to spend another <clears throat> God knows how many hundreds of dollars. Right. Well, I told you I'd make it better so at least you could use it. Didn't yeah. I? And it worked, didn't it? It worked perfectly. Yeah. By resetting the control like I did, it probably would have worked for a while. But we would I would have never known when that while was going to end, and that's just too nervous. That's exactly. And, it, and I couldn't tell you if it's going to last three days, three months, three years. I wouldn't have uh, been able to tell you. It's the moment of truth. Okay. Lid switch works. That's my favorite sound. Yes, I know it is. So then, if you had only one tool that you could use, what tool would that be? I'd have to say you'd almost need a screwdriver because you got it. It's got to be moving. You always turning left or right. It's got to be some type of screwdriver that's got multiple tips. Okay, it's spinning. So is there any way to predict the life of this machine if I continue to take care of it 
I could do that, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. If I could tell you when it's going to break or when, how long it's going to last you, a lot of people ask me that. I, you know, what I tell them is, it, you know, it's going to probably last, you know, six, eight months more, maybe six or eight years longer. You know, it, I wish I could tell you. And it, if you continue to do the things like you've been doing them, everything else looks in pretty decent shape. That's good. And like I said, with the electronic components, it's most generally something that the customer doesn't do. Not saying that there are that 10% that it's caused by user, which is the customer, um, but that's not you. Well, you're good to go. Let that right. finish off. You don't mind it running, do you? No, not at all. Yay! She's happy. Screw up. It's Priscilla, queen of the laundry. <laughs> yeah. All right, I'm going to keep going. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was all of 28 minutes it took you to do that. You like that? I love it. See? You get Take care. See you later. Have a good one. You too. For WORT, I'm Jennifer Field. And that's a wrap for WORT's live local news at 6. Your reporter tonight was Cedar Gray. Special thanks to feature contributors Jonathan Fields and Dylan Brogan. Mr. Brogan also engineered tonight's show. Jonah Chester is the, is the producer of this newscast, and Ms. Sholly Pittman is the news director here at WORT. Thank you guys for listening. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton. And I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. Don't forget to download WORT's app to get your favorite music shows on demand and stay up to date with WORT's local news podcast. You can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you listen. Up next is the Perpetual Notion Machine. Thanks for listening and good night. W-O-R-T, Madison. Madison.